Morning. Morning. Well, thanks for coming today. One week to go before the big party. 25 years of Sutton Vineyard and 25 years of Jason and Bev planting the church and leading it to where it is today. Uh, Last week, if you've watched it or you were here, Jason was preaching as senior pastor for the last time. And what an amazing talk it was. This week is my first time, which, well, that's encouraging, Um, which could be very scary, of course, but actually it isn't because you're all very lovely and you've made me and Lynn feel very welcome. So thank you. So people sometimes ask me, what's the difference between here and Aylesbury Vineyard, where you were senior pastors before? Probably the main thing here is trying not to get too excited and falling off the back of the stage. (laughs) Now, it's not our job to change things here at Sutton Vineyard, but we have asked for a paramedic to be on team, just in case. (laughs) You can't be too careful at our age. Talking of things that are the same in both churches, the most obvious thing is vineyard values. And a couple of weeks here, we just finished a little mini-series on exactly that. So if you missed it, then do catch up and watch the talks on our YouTube channel. Now, when we talk about vineyard values, we're not saying that we are better than anyone else or that other churches don't have values. Of course they do. We're just highlighting some of the things that are important to us in how we understand being Christians and doing church together. Uh, Nor is it the case that we have different beliefs. We affirm the classic creeds, what all Christians everywhere have always believed. But I guess we all know that although churches may believe the same things on paper, they don't all look the same in how that works out. Rather like they used to say about my rugby team, Harlequins. Now obviously I couldn't get through today without mentioning Harlequins. If anyone's doing a sweepstake on that, then uh, the time is 2 minutes 24 seconds. What they used to say about Harlequins, because we hardly ever used to win anything, was that we always had a great team on paper. The only problem was that rugby is played on grass. And it's a little bit like that when it comes to being a Christian and doing church. The theory is the same, but the way that people go about it doesn't always look the same. So that Vineyard Values series is a way of explaining to anyone who's new to the church and a reminder for those of us who are not so new what being a vineyard is all about. And the implication, of course, when we talk about Vineyard Values is that they are also God Values things that are important to him. Because if there was no alignment between his values and our values, then we wouldn't be much of a church. I don't know if you've noticed this yourself, but by and large, what churches are like tends to reflect what they think God is like. What they see as most important tends to be what they think God sees as most important, for better or for worse. And that's kind of uh, where I want to come from this morning. I want to ask a question, and more importantly, to try to answer a question that always used to bug me. What does God want? What does God want from us, you and me? What does God want in this world? 
What does success look like from his perspective? And what role does he want us to play in that? So if a friend was to ask you that question, what does God want? I wonder what you'd say. And if they're not from a church background, they might put it a bit differently. If there is a God, as you say, what does God want? What's his agenda? And of course, that, that's a bit more intimidating, isn't it, putting it like that? So maybe you would start off with something fairly low risk, something quite non-contentious. Maybe you'd say, God wants everyone to get along with each other. A kind of cosmic equivalent of play nicely, children. But the problem is, who defines what playing nicely looks like? Surely the problems of this world aren't going to be sorted just by telling everyone to get along. I mean, that's not a, a bad thing, but there must be more to it than that. Now, maybe you'd be brave and go for something evangelistic. God wants everyone to become a Christian, to pray the prayer and ask Jesus into their life. And obviously, that's a good thing. We like that. But then what? After they've prayed the prayer. Is that it? One more name added to the heavenly spreadsheet? That can sound a bit transactional. A bit like having a get-out-of-hell-free card in your back pocket in case you need it. And staying just on the right side of God in the meantime by going to church every so often. Many years ago in the church we were in at the time, I remember someone saying, I know God just wants me to be happy. And that was her interpretive lens through which she judged what God was and wasn't saying on everything. So if it was something that would make her happy, then God must be in it. And if it was something that wouldn't make her happy, then God obviously wasn't in it. And you can kind of see what she meant, can't you? Because we, we certainly don't believe that God has an agenda to make us unhappy. But if we push that too far, as she did, then we end up with whatever will make me happy being Lord of my life, instead of Jesus being Lord of my life. Here's another possibility, getting a bit more biblical, and especially if we've got a fairly strong sense of right and wrong. God wants us to keep his commandments. And obviously there's truth in that. Otherwise they wouldn't be called commandments in the first place, would they? There's a clue in the name. But then the question is, which ones? Because there weren't just the famous Ten Commandments. The rabbis counted and there were 613 of them. And that's just in the Old Testament. Which complicates things a bit for you and me. Because however much we may want to do what the Bible says, some of those commandments do seem to be just a teensy-weensy bit out of date. Like Leviticus 19.19, don't wear clothes made out of two kinds of material. Whatever the point was of that one at the time, it's definitely lost to us now. And then while we're at it, what about this one? If two men are fighting and the wife of one of them comes to rescue her husband from his assailant and she reaches out and seizes him by his private parts, you shall cut off her hand. Show her no pity. Okay. That one sounds even more weird, does it not? And again, it's hard to see the point of that thousands of years later. 
I love how the old King James Version says it. Putteth forth her hand and taketh him by the secrets. <laughs> now the reality is it probably never happened in practice. Although if you were a married woman and your husband got into a fight and you were only trying to help, you'd be pretty gutted if you hadn't read Deuteronomy recently. But given the problem of trying to figure out which commandments are relevant to us, it's no wonder that most Christians end up deciding for themselves what they will and won't do. Mainly based on a combination of what feels right to me and how convenient or inconvenient it would be. And be honest, who hasn't been tempted by a polyester and acrylic jumper? <laughs> Just saying. But the point is this, if ever you are minded to tell people that the Bible is God's instruction manual, please do be ready when they ask you to show them where the instructions are. But if none of that is really most important in what God wants, then what is? And I was thinking about this during the week and it struck me that it's really all about one point. But everyone knows that all the best sermons have three points, don't they? So call me insecure, but three points it's going to be. And then maybe as I'm talking, perhaps you can try to figure out what that one point would have been, and then I'll tell you at the end. But for now, it's three. Nothing complicated, nothing you'll need a theological dictionary for, and nothing that you'll have forgotten by lunchtime. Three things that, for me, sum up what God wants in this world and how we fit into that. Plus, a bonus point four, a freebie that kind of follows on. Who says you don't get value for money at Sutton Vineyard? <laughs> so the very first thing I think that God wants is this. God wants us to know how very much he loves us. There are so many Bible verses that tell us that over and over again from cover to cover. If there's one thing that is main and plain in scripture, this is it. Isaiah 54, the mountains might shake, the hills might be removed, but my faithful love for you will never be shaken. Jeremiah 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. 1 John 3, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And Romans 8, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible is so full of this message that we absolutely have to believe it. But the problem that we sometimes have, and maybe this is true for you, we can believe that it's true for people in general but we struggle to believe that it's true for us. We struggle to believe that it is true for me. But folks, 
we really must. We may not think that we're very lovable, but God totally disagrees with us. Read the Gospels, see how Jesus was always reaching out to people on the margins, and especially to people who also thought they weren't very lovable. Mostly, I'm afraid, because that's what the religious leaders had told them. And that's why he got angry with them, because they were hurting and harming the people God loved. They were misrepresenting what God was like, because they'd misunderstood God's priorities and what he cared about the most. Jesus loved people and met people as they were, where they were, whatever their circumstances in life which for most people in first century Israel would have been pretty bad. But Jesus understood that. We have a vineyard saying, come as you are, that reflects that same love and welcome of Jesus. And sometimes you might hear a slightly different version of that. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. And the problem with that is it can give the impression that our welcome is provisional and conditional and the clock is ticking before you're supposed to have changed in some way but that's not right all it's wanting to say is that our God is in the transformation business and his desire is to transform all of us but what changes whether it changes and when it changes is between each of us and him it's no one else's business It's not for us to get involved. Unless, of course, it's about safeguarding others. You see, the gospel doesn't start with sin. It starts with love. It doesn't start with a threat of punishment, but an invitation into a relationship. It doesn't start with how awful we are. It starts with how wonderful he is. It's because God loves us that he wants a relationship with us. A close, intimate, personal relationship. Rather like we see pictured at the very beginning in Genesis 2 and 3. So point number one is that God wants us to know how very much he loves us. Which is the foundation for and the starting point for number two. God wants us to want to love him in return. He wants us to be so convinced of his love and so overwhelmed by his love that we are captivated by it, head over heels with it. So we cannot but respond to it by loving him as well. Not by compulsion, not because we're told to or we ought to, but by our own free choice. Have you ever wondered why God allowed Adam and Eve to do the wrong thing in the Garden of Eden? Why he didn't leave out that potential to make the wrong choices gene from our DNA? It's because he made us with something called free will. He wants us to want to love him and to do what's right by choice, not because we have no alternative. Another aspect of that is that there had to be the potential for another voice to listen to. Otherwise, it would have been like the elections in a dictatorship, where the good news is you get a ballot paper. 
The bad news is there's only one name on it. And that necessity of an alternative voice is where Satan comes in. If we cast our minds back to the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, if you're familiar with that, then what happens there is that the serpent's strategy is to undermine their confidence in what God is like. Whether God is someone who can be loved and trusted and who wants the best for them. That was the very first spiritual battle. And I would say it's still the biggest spiritual battle. The truth versus the lies about what God is like in his nature and character. The kind of God that he is and what matters the most to him. Does he really love us passionately and unconditionally? Is he really a God that we can love in return? There are several reasons that Jesus came and many things that his life, death and resurrection achieved. But to my mind, the number one reason was to show us what God is like in a person that we can see, in a person we can relate to and to answer those questions with a great big yes. In contrast, the agenda of that alternative voice, that Satan voice, is to damage and undermine and, if possible, to destroy our mental picture and our heart picture of the kind of God he is, the kind of person he is, and what things matter to him the most, and to replace that with a caricature and lies which includes the lie that Satan has had the most success with over the centuries. And I'm afraid that some Christians have at times conspired with him in that, which is that God is a God to be feared, as much or more than he's a God to be loved. Do you remember the the first thing that Adam said in Genesis 3 after they'd been listening to Satan? I was afraid, so I hid. Fear replaced love. A lie replaced the truth. And once we've got this idea in our heads that God is primarily to be feared, then love gets squeezed out. Even though 1 John 4 tells us perfect love drives out fear. God isn't in the business of instilling fear. He's in the business of dispelling fear and filling that space with his presence, which brings his perfect love with it. Now, a deep respect for God is good, a reverence is good, and a sense of awe is good. All of those are right, but never being frightened of him or terrorized by him. That is always the alternative voice speaking. And if we do fear God in those ways, we've misunderstood him. Because that will not draw us to him, it will drive us away from him. Now there are people who do need to fear God, of course. Those who do evil and keep on doing evil. Those who hurt the people that God loves. They should fear him because he's a God of justice on behalf of the victims and the powerless and the oppressed who don't get justice in this life. God will make sure that they do in the next life. 
And then finally, number three, God wants us to love the things that he loves. Now we could also say, God wants us to hate what he hates, to be angry about things we feel aren't right in the world. But we need to be really careful about that because it's all too easy for us to come across as hating people and being angry with people. Because that old catchphrase that you may have heard, love the sinner, hate the sin, doesn't work so well these days. Because people don't so easily separate who they are from what they do anymore. They just don't think in those terms. And that's a problem. Because whenever we draw up a list of what God loves, people are always at the top. And it's not just nice people and respectable people and people like me and people that I naturally get on with but all sorts of people you know it came as a bit of a shock even though I think Lynn had been trying to tell me this for years when I realized that the Holy Spirit's agenda for transforming people was not to make them all more like me Now you may know that the the commandment had been love your neighbour as yourself. And Jesus said, that's great, but I'm going to raise the bar a bit. Because that was loving ourselves as well, love. But now, he said, it's sacrificial love. Now it's love one another as I have loved you, love. So the first thing that God loves is people. Another thing he loves is righteousness. Now, please don't get hung up with imparted righteousness and imputed righteousness and all that good stuff. It's much simpler than that. There are two aspects to it. The first relates to us. Because however much God loves us as we are and invites us to come as we are, we need to be made right with him. Because our natural state is unright with him. So part of his love was to do something about that. Something that we ourselves couldn't do. Romans 5 calls that his gift of righteousness. A free gift by grace through Jesus that all we need to do is receive. And then as we're living in the fruit of that gift made righteous in relation to him, God wants us to be righteous and to do righteousness in relation to his world. Which is why Paul can say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, pursue righteousness. And why Jesus can say in Matthew 6, do righteousness, practice righteousness. And what that means, pretty simple stuff, doing what's right. Do the right thing. Whatever the right thing is, just do it, as Nike almost said. And it means all of our relationships being right. My relationship with God, my relationship with myself, my relationship with other people, and my relationship with this world. Caring for God's creation. Making those right and keeping them right which of course is only possible by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
God calls us to be righteous and to do righteousness in a world that we know isn't right. Which is why one day God will make it right. He'll make it the way that it should be, the way that it was destined to be in the new heavens and earth in which all of the wrong things and all of the bad things like sin and evil and sickness and suffering and death are taken away and destroyed. Just like in the parable of the wheat and the weeds in Matthew 13. And when death is gone, what does that make possible? Eternal life. Because there's no death to take life away anymore. And when sin is gone and evil is gone, what does that make possible? The permanent presence of God dwelling with his now made righteous people. God also loves justice. And there's a very close connection between righteousness and justice. So much so that in scripture, the idea of righteousness without justice is unthinkable. Psalm 33, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. Amos 5, let justice flow like a river and righteousness like a river that never goes dry. And Psalm 106, blessed are those who act justly, who always do what's right. And God loves compassion because righteousness and justice and compassion are part of who God is. Psalm 86, you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Proverbs 29, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. And that's why John Wimber, who was the main founder of the vineyards, why he said, if you're not going to look after the poor, please don't put the name vineyard on your building. So what does God want for you and me and from you and me? Number one, he wants us to know how very much he loves us because that is the foundation for everything. It's also the foundation for everything else that the Bible has to say to us. If we don't get that right, if that isn't the lens through which we're looking at things, then we won't get the rest right. Number two, God wants us to want to love him in return. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Not under compulsion, not because we have to or we ought to, but because we want to. Because he's captured our hearts with his love. Romans 2.4 says it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, not the tut-tut-tutting of other Christians. And number three, God wants us to love the things that he loves, which starts with people and justice and righteousness and compassion. And of course, there are many other things as well that we don't have time to talk about this morning. But all of them are reflections of who God is and what God is like as a people-centric God. And I said at the beginning that we would have a bonus point, number four, 
But it's really part of number three. God wants us to do what he does. And it's part of number three because love is not a feeling word. It's a doing word. Love is not a noun in our lives unless it's a verb in our lives. So if we want to be loving God and loving people God's way in a biblical way, it's not just feeling love or having love, it's doing love. Now please don't worry about the fear of salvation by works and works righteousness that's been handed down to us from the Reformation. We are not in danger of that. The danger that we are in as 21st century Christians is the very opposite. The danger is that we think it's all about and only about what we believe. When God sees our believing and our doing as inseparable. And interestingly, in scripture it's the doing or not doing that tells him what we believe. Matthew 7, Luke 6:46, Luke 10:37. So we need to copy Jesus and do the works that he did for the reasons that he did, the works that he saw the Father doing. In John 9, Jesus said, "We must work the works of him who sent me." And James the brother of Jesus, he was pretty blunt about that in James 2. He said, faith without works is useless. Anna, maybe I could ask you and the band to come back. While they're doing that, um, let me just tell you why my first thought was to have just one point this morning. Here's a clue. God wants us, you and me, more than anything else. Because once he's got us, then everything else will fall into place. So here's a question to ask ourselves this morning. Has he got me? Has he really got me? Has he got all of me? Has he got my doing as well as my believing. Because this morning, which marks the end of an era for Sutton Vineyard and the start of a new beginning, can be the start of a new beginning for every single one of us as well, if we want it to be.